Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Leon Miller. You have a right to drive a car on a New South Wales public road if you hold a driver's license, which indicates that at least you once knew the road rules. I say at least once because maybe you don't anymore. And as well as that, you, when you got your license, you were able to prove your identity, uh, pass the eyesight test, that's important, and you held your P-plates, the green P-plates, for 24 months. That's if you got them you got your licence after 1965 when it started and as well as that you've paid your licence fee. That's all you have to do to get your driver's licence and some of you think it's a bit of a hurdle but really it's not much at all. Try this next one however. You have the right to be an Australian Security Intelligence Organisation employee, ASIO, employee, if you're able to pass and get through a series of hurdles. It takes a whole year to get through these hurdles. There's an interview, there's assessments, there's security clearance. You have to demonstrate your ability to think strategically. You've got to have good working relationships with people and so on. The list goes on and on. Oh, and you have to usually live in Canberra as well. Um, and then if you pass all those hurdles, if you get to that, then you may, be, may become a security officer with the ASIO. Our right to be in heaven is determined in a very different way to these examples. Let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you'll help us today to understand that our individual actions do make a statement about our relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture records three times when a mark indicated people's allegiance to God. The first is in Exodus 12, verse 13. We don't need to look it up. You know the story of how blood was put on the sides and tops of the door frames of the Israelites' homes. And if it was there that night when the angel of death came through, the firstborn in the home was spared. His life was spared. Her life was spared. And Ezekiel 9, verse 4 we read of an angel putting a mark on the foreheads of those people in Jerusalem who were sighing and crying, Ezekiel says, for all the evil that was being done in the city of Jerusalem. And if they had that mark, then the destroying angels would pass by those who had it. Revelation 7 records a third instance of a mark being applied by God. Now we need to understand that Revelation 6 and Revelation 8 are a continuation of one story. In Revelation 6 we have the first of the six seals. 
Then there's this parenthetical chapter, chapter 7, and then at the beginning of chapter 8 is the seventh seal when it is opened, and when it is opened, the silence, it says in Scripture, when Jesus returns to this earth. The seals of Revelation 6 describe the ongoing period from the early Christian church to the late 1700s in which God's people would be in the process of overcoming. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ told John would take place what would happen when the sixth seal was broken. Let's have a look in your Bibles at Revelation 6, verses 12 and 13. Revelation 6, verses 12 and 13. Here the sixth seal is about to be opened. And Jesus, through John, says what is going to happen. Revelation 6, verses 12 and 13. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. This prophecy was fulfilled, and in that same order, that exact same order, 2,000 years later, after it was written. On the 1st of May, 1755, the Lisbon earthquake shook western Portugal. There were some 60 to 100,000 people that died on that day, on that Sunday morning, 70% of the homes, the buildings were destroyed, which included the churches where people were worshipping. There were tsunamis and there were fires. Then the second sign was fulfilled on the 19th of May, 1780, when in eastern New York and southern New York, southern New England in the United States of America, there was a dark day and the moon turned to blood and this wasn't just an ordinary dark day. There are dark days from time to time when the sun is eclipsed. But this was one that came from midday and went right through into the night as well. Very, very dark. The birds went to roost and so on. And then on the 13th of November, 1833, again in the United States, the stars fell from heaven in fulfilment of this prophecy. There were so many stars, so many meteorites that they were able to read their newspapers, it said. And at the storm's peak, people could count up to 30 different meteors that would be landing. It was a magnificent display, but a fulfilment of prophecy. With these events, the sixth seal was broken. And then we have this chapter in between seven and then on to chapter eight, when Jesus comes, the seventh seal is broken and Christ comes when the seal is broken. Chapter 7 has a message for those Christians living between the sixth and the seventh seals. We are living in that time. That's us that are living in that time of that seventh chapter. We're living at that time and the message of Revelation, I believe, is for us as well. Chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 says this, Then I saw another angel descending from the east, having the seal of the living God. 
And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Don't touch them. Don't touch the earth. Don't let this time of tragedy come until these people have been sealed in the foreheads. That angel that's spoken of there coming from the east is none other than Jesus Christ. And the sealing of each person indicates that they are to be protected. It gives them the assurance of salvation. In 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul explains that the seal of God indicates that God knows his own, those who are sealed. So if we want to be in that group that is sealed... The introductory thought, if you like, is that we need to know God personally. For God, determining who will enter heaven, won't be just, for him, it won't be just a matter of choosing something on the basis of whether it's got paint on its neck with microdots there or a license or an ASIO card, but rather God looks at our hearts. When we talk about hearts in the Bible and even in our common day-to-day language, we're not actually talking about our hearts when it comes to things. For example, we might say, caring for the environment is dear to my heart, when we really mean that it's something that we've thought through and it's part of our thinking. Revelation 7 has some really important insights for us, I believe. Turn in your Bible to Revelation 7. And there you'll see in verses 4 through to 8 a reference to 144,000 people. Verse 4 says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. So does this mean that on the day when Christ comes, that there are going to be 12 robes, rows rather, Yes, there'll be robes too, white robes if you like, figuratively. Twelve rows of 12,000 each, exactly? It's not that at all. But rather, it's to indicate that the seal of God is put on the foreheads of people from each of the tribes of Israel. And when you look through the story of the patriarchs, Jacob's sons, they were all very, very different. This is a figurative explanation of the fact that those who are thus marked came from situations which, with which we can easily identify. Like us, they struggled with less than perfect characters. Is that you? It's me. But they received the seal of God because they were servants of God rather than slaves to Satan. That's significant. Revelation 7 also challenges us with the fact that two tribes are missing from the list. Have a look down in your Bibles there. Can you see who's missing from that list, the two tribes? Dan's one. Who's the other one? Yes, Ephraim. Turn in your Bible to Genesis 49, verses 16, and then we're going to read through to verse 19, talking about Dan. 
Genesis 49:16. Genesis 49 verse 16 through to 17 says, "Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider, its rider shall fall backward." Here is a prophetic statement of what Dan would be like in the future, and it's made by his own father, by Jacob. Another thing that Dan was going to be was become a, a judge. But his father particularly focused on the fact that he was like a serpent by the way, a viper that bites. Zephaniah 3 verse 13 3 verse 13 says this, The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. Here Zephaniah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, was saying what God's people would be like at the end of time. They wouldn't lie or be deceitful in what they said, in contrast to what Dan was like. I don't know how that puts you, but I think through to times when I haven't always said what I should have said. But maybe that's not you. But God is giving, I believe, a strong message to us here. He is saying, if there's going to be something that might keep you out of the kingdom, it might be that you don't tell truths always. Revelation 14 verse 5 says, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. In John 8 verse 44, Jesus said that Satan is the father of all lies, as was demonstrated in heaven when he deceived his fellow angels, and later in the Garden of Eden when he deceives Eve and then Adam. This way of thinking is particularly abhorrent to God. Dan's won't receive the seal of God. That seems to be the message. The other person that you mentioned, um, Monet, Ephraim. Turn to Hosea, over there right toward the end of the Old Testament, Hosea. Hosea chapter 4. Why isn't Ephraim's name mentioned? Because those who are like him will not receive the seal of God. His sin? Hosea 4 verse 17. Would somebody like to read it please? Hosea 7 14. I beg your pardon, 4 17. Just a little sentence. Simple, isn't it? Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. Why would God do that to somebody, keep them out of the kingdom because they are joined to the idols? Maybe the answer is very clear, actually, if we look in Exodus 23 and 4. What are the first two commandments all about? What are they about? What's the first? Okay. And it says... Have no other gods before me, or those that even look like an image. 
Idol worshippers will not receive the seal of God because they have other than God on the throne of their hearts. Have you ever thought about it like that before? It's because when we have a, an idol, we're like, if we're like Ephraim, we're putting something else on our hearts rather than God. That's what it's all about. Foremost in chapter 7, we're told that those who receive the seal of God will have personally accepted Jesus' sacrifice for them. In verse 14 of chapter 7 of Revelation, John's in vision. And he sees himself in front of the throne of God, pointing to the great multitude of people, including the 144,000, who are also before the throne of God. One of the heavenly beings talks to John, asks him a question. And he says, does this heavenly being, looking at the 144,000 and this great multitude of people, he said, who are they? Who are they and where do they come from? And here's John's answer, an answer that the heavenly being already knew. Sir, you know, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If I want to have the seal of God, this is another thing that needs to happen in my life where I accept Jesus Christ's death for me. In the Bible we read that at the end of one time of Jesus speaking, some people were flabbergasted. Matthew 7. Would you like to turn to Matthew 7, verse 21? Now this wasn't Hans and Heidi that were flabbergasted, but here it's a different group of people. Jesus has finished telling his preaching his sermon on the mountainside. And we read that in chapters 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew. And then he says this in verse 21 through to 24. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, notice that, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we have not prophesied in your name. Have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? They're, they're just flabbergasted. We've done all these things. And then Jesus says this, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice... What's the next word? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. And here in this crowd, there are many people who keeping the law was a focus to them. So how could he say this to these people that were keeping the law? They prophesied in Jesus' name. It says there in the text. We'd say it's equivalent to preaching to others, witnessing to others about Jesus Christ taking Sabbath school lessons, and so on. Jesus didn't describe the setting, but he did explain the reality. We will not be saved unless we know Jesus. On judgment day, our salvation will depend on us knowing him, on having the seal of God in our foreheads. 
Notice where this story comes in our Bibles. In Matthew chapters 5 to 7, as I've said, Jesus had pronounced a blessing on those who sought to put into practice what he had taught them. That's what he was wanting to do. He also provided us with some checkpoints to help us recognise who really has our hearts. So this morning, who really has our hearts? I think this section of the Bible, chapters 5, 6 and 7 in Matthew, has some indicators as to who has our hearts. Let's have a look at just some of these passages. First of all, Matthew 5, verse 16. Jenny, I think you've got that one. Would you like to read it, please? Matthew 5, 16. Now, Jenny and some of you might like to just to comment about these texts after you've read them. Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I'm looking at the church today. The ones that are on are connected to the power have been very consistent in their in shining. And the ones that are off, disconnected from the power, are of course not as effective. And I was thinking letting your light shine is what we have to choose to do, but it is actually God shining through us. And that happens in our conversation. It happens when we show that we're honest or have good integrity and um, also with um, the way in which we treat other people. That is what the good works are. It's just not random acts of kindness. It's consistently living in all aspects of our life. And that is what glorifies God. But maybe, thank you, Judy, but maybe we think to ourselves, but look, it's just, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. Now, Herb, that's not you because you just do it so well. But maybe sometimes some of us say, well, it's just not me, I, I can't do that. Let's look at the next one. Who has number two? Thanks, Greg. Matthew, uh, Matthew 5.27 says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So our hearts, um, our human hearts, we have a carnal nature and we have to yeah, resist. And you know, the, the thought in our minds, it starts and then it can sprout. So we have to ask God to give us power in the area, male or female, whatever. Um, yeah, to give us strength in the area of this area. Yeah. So here's a second area, you see? Thanks, Greg. Sorry. Here's the second area. And maybe we could say to ourselves, where do my eyes go when I see an advertisement? Where do my eyes go when I see a woman coming towards me? You see, this second area here that we're looking at might be something that we struggle with. Maybe all the others we can look at you don't. But maybe this is one. Third one, please. 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Thank you, Anna. I just wanted to say it's not easy to do, especially when others hurt you or betray you, but God knows what's best for us. And when we choose to follow his word and, and to love our enemies, he gives us peace of mind, mm-hmm. and we sort of follow his example. He showed us that example of loving everyone. But haven't we all heard and perhaps said ourselves, I, I will never forgive him for doing that. Ever heard that? Mm. And we've probably said it. And yet this, this text that we've read, Jesus said, if that's something that's there as a stumbling block and you're not able to give that to the Lord and to ask for the Holy Spirit to help you to overcome that, the seal of God won't be placed on my head. We'll come back to that concept, if you like. The next one, please. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray... Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Yes. Because it's God we're praying to. We're not not showing off to others. Does it also include, though, that just praying... Maybe, maybe we, our attitude is, well, look, I do it all in my head and um, I'm, I'm really praying all day and so that's enough. Jesus says here, shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And maybe this is an area for some of us where it's not something that we're doing that we're enabling us to get close to God. The last one. Thanks, Mel. Yeah. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I'll let you sort that one out. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mel. Thank you. I think... This is how I see it, but you tell me what you think. I think it's what this is saying here is Jesus is wanting me to reflect on how I see other people. We're in a group, chattering away, and somebody comes up to us, comes toward us, and you you can see that they're going to join the group. It's somebody you know, and sometimes... If they're at a distance away, gives us a bit of a chance to talk about them before they get there. Ever heard that? Ever seen that happen? Ever been involved in that? Or, or you're the person that's coming, and you can just see what's going on, and what's going on perhaps is some judging, some judging. Um, I, I wouldn't do that. That's not how I do it. Um, 
In each of these statements that we've looked at, Jesus is not saying, make sure you do each of these things. Because if you do, you'll have eternal life. He's not saying that at all. Rather, he wants us to acknowledge that his statements that we've looked at are not just those, but others in those chapters 5, 6 and 7, right through the book, through the Bible. Anytime we pick up the Bible and if we ask the Holy Spirit to direct our thinking, he is going to prompt us, he's going to point out something and say, that's the thing that's standing between me and you. That's the idol that's on your heart. It's getting in the way. And because it's there, I can't put my seal on you. John, the same disciple who wrote about the seal of God, also wrote the letter to those in Ephesus. But it was to the Christian church at large. And his focus was about living the Christian life through faith in Jesus Christ. John was a realist. He knew that, like him, all Christians struggle to know God. In his first letter, he writes about this reality. Would you like to turn to 1 John? We're going to look at three passages here in this first epistle. John 5, chapter... 1 John, chapter 5, and then we're going to look at verse 19 first and then come back in the same chapter to verse 4. So 1 John 5, verse 19... 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Is that true? It's absolutely true, isn't it? Then verse 4. For everyone everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Today, all of us stumble in our Christian lives. That's how it is. We all stumble. And yes, the Holy Spirit will point out to us that that thing is standing between me and you, Leon. It's standing between me and you. And if I give that over to the Lord in faith and say, Lord, take that from me, he promises he will do it. But it doesn't mean that I'm not going to stumble perhaps there again in that same issue. But maybe over a period of time I do gain a lot of victory over that thing. Whatever it is. Then lo and behold, there's something else that the Holy Spirit says and says, hey, what about so-and-so? That's an idol standing between me and you. And we say to ourselves, yes, it is, Lord. It is standing between me and you. Go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2 of 1 John. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John says in his letter to the people of Asia Minor, to the whole world, if anybody does sin, and we all say with one voice, of course we sin. Of course we sin. Not because we want to, but we are sinners. 1 John 5 verse 16. 
1 John 5, verse 16. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. Refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. So John is saying here, give this thing that's standing between you and me to God because I want to take it from you. What's our part in the process of this? I have several texts for you to look at. First is in Psalm 51 verse 10. This is the process of us overcoming. This is the process of us receiving the seal of God because we have no idols between us and God. Can you tell me what it is even before you look it up? Psalm 51.10. That's it. Create in me a clean heart. So we're willing to say, Lord, I, my heart isn't good. It's not good. It's, I have idols that are standing between me and you. I want you to create in me a clean heart. Then a little bit further over in your Bible, Psalm 86, verse 11. Psalm 86, verse 11. So first of all, we're asking the Lord to create in us a clean heart. Then we say, verse 11 of 86, Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, teach me. Have you ever had somebody that you were trying to teach something to that was new and they just know it all? Have you ever had that sort of person? They just, you just can't get anywhere with them because they know how to do it. They know how to hold the saw or they know how to bake the cake or whatever it is. Here the psalmist is saying, my attitude has to be, Lord, teach me. I need teaching. Over in the New Testament, Matthew 22, verse 37. And this, this statement that Jesus makes is all through the Bible, especially Deuteronomy. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus was asked a question, and his answer to him is, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God... Can you tell me what the rest is? With all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. How, how much of us does that encompass? The whole thing, doesn't it? It doesn't leave anything out. So in this business of receiving the seal of God, God is saying to us, if you want to have the seal of God, you need to put me first in your whole life. Not just some of it, but your whole life. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Here's a new thought. The law of God helps us to understand our sin. That's why that law can be there and the benefit of it. And then 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through 
sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Two things here. Sanctification and by whom, did I say? By the Spirit. So there's a process of change that's going on here. We're not becoming perfect because we never will be perfect before Jesus comes. But we're becoming more like Jesus. We're becoming more willing to give up the things that are idols in our lives and are standing between us and Jesus Christ. And it's all possible by what? What did I say? The Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit wants to do this for you and for me. It's amazing how how thick we can be, colloquially, thick we can be. This power is there for us to use, and we don't use it. It's like being out in the desert and you want some water, there's a tap there, but you don't turn it on. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us through this process of becoming more like Jesus and giving our lives to him. Ezekiel 11 Ezekiel 11 verses 19 and 20. It's on the screen there if you'd like to look at it. Here's a process. This surgeon that's spoken of here can give us a new heart. Would you like to have a heart transplant? This is all about heart transplants. It says, Then I will give you them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will put the seal of God on them. Look at this text, what it says. Right at the beginning, it says that here our creator God is a heart transplant surgeon. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. And that's what it's all about, because if we have a new heart and not the heart of stone, then we're going to be able to respond to the Holy Spirit's appeals to us. Look at the next part. And I will put a new spirit within them. God will change our thinking so that we see things differently. We'll see things from God's point of view and not from a human point of view. I will take the stony heart out and I'll give it a heart of flesh. Have you ever thought about the the contrast here? Our bodies are all flesh, and yet in this, this person has a heart that's made of stone. How can that be? God is saying there's something in your life that shouldn't be there, and it's your heart because it's a stone heart. I need to give you what you really need, and that's a heart of flesh. The rest of the verse says, that they may walk in my statutes. God wants us to walk in his statutes. Yes, read Matthew 5 through to 17 and think about how it applies to our lives. And are there some things there that really indicate, if I'm honest with myself, that they are standing between me and God. And then look at this beautiful part here at the end. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. We will see ourselves as God's people. You see... If you see yourself, if I see myself as God's people, person, he's the one that I'm going to give allegiance to. If you drive a Ford and you talk a Ford, you can't talk Holdens to somebody that likes Holdens, can you? 
You can't do it. If you knew my son-in-law, one of my sons-in-law, you'd know that you can't talk forwards to him because he's a Holden man only. He has Holden gear that he wears and all this sort of thing, you see. Ye shall be my people and I will be their God. God wants us to be his people. Solomon understood this. Proverbs 29 verse 19 says, As water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man or woman or boy and girl. Martin Luther said, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. That's really your God. I write at the top of this presentation, one matters, one matters. And what I meant by that was this, that it might be just one thing that stands between me and and God. Now I'm sure there's not just one thing in that case, but if there's just one thing that I know is there, but I I just make excuses for it. Look, I... We, we just, it's my background. I'm German, and I am by background, you see. And, and all Germans are, are like that, so you've just got to put up with it. Hans and Heidi, you see. You, you've just got to, that's how I am. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. God wants us to cling to Him, to confide in Him, so that we he can put his seal of ownership and protection on us. Do you want him to do that for you? I'm sure you do. This message was made available by the Barrel Seventh day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit barreladventist.church.
is only one desire inside of me. It's to be everything you've created me to be. And I know the only way that I can grow is for you to come inside and take control. So write them on my heart, seal them in my mind. The beauty of your love and grace combined. Remind me just how lovely your commandments are, and write them on the tab. Sang, Write Them on My Heart. Coming up next, Diane Lapu's Hope will be singing Walking with You, Jesus. So take my hand, take my heart 
Listen to Bill Ackland as he reads from his book, Talking with God. Today's prayer is entitled, A New Day. And our text for this prayer is found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. As he commanded his wonderful work of creation, God said, Let there be light. And light appeared instantly. God was pleased with the light he created and deemed it most satisfying, causing a permanent division between light and darkness. God gave names to the light and the darkness, calling these day and night. So the very first evening and the very first morning comprised the first day. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for a new unexplored day. My gratefulness is not only for another cycle of 24 hours, but that most of my days are enjoyable and fulfilling. These are concepts that are rarely experienced by so many in this world, a world of inequity, unfairness and injustice. While I thank you for another day, that is not only for just another day of life, but that Inexorably, this day passes another marker toward the reward of the just that you promised, closer to the time when your separated family will be one again. 
then we really shall find every day on the new earth so infinitely more than enjoyable and fulfilling. Only the language of heaven that we shall speak will adequately describe life as it was meant to be lived with you. So what does this day hold for me, Lord? What surprises do you have for this child of yours? Conversely, and you know the answer to this question too, what roadblocks will the enemy place in my way? Nothing I am sure that we cannot overcome together. The critical thing though is that I don't try to rush ahead, letting go of your hand, and like Peter, think I can walk on water, smiling at those around me for my small accomplishments. The only safe way through today, dear Father, is for you to be ahead, behind and beside me, preparing, guiding, watching and sheltering, for your providence is wonderful. In a unique sense, though, Christ in me, the hope of glory, as Paul explained, is what will take me through life one day at a time, until that last of earthly days merges into eternity. And while the sun will rise and set in the great hereafter, the sunshine of your enveloping love and care will remind us that our days then shall be enjoyable and fulfilling beyond measure. Thank you, Lord, for a new day and for all those special days to come. In true gratefulness, I am your child. Amen. To obtain your copy of Talking With God, written by Bill Ackland, give us a call in Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. tip lady and I love to give tips to help make your life more simple do you ever feel that your life is just pretend that you're all show and no punch that you're going absolutely nowhere well we were out walking the other day and we spotted an old wagon in a weedy overgrown paddock we thought that there must be some interesting mystery there so we hiked over to investigate and surprise, it was a wagon. But it had fixed wooden wheels that had never turned as wheels do. It was all show and no do. It never had done anything. It had just sat there since the day it was built. It was just pretend. It had never creaked and rattled its way along a dusty trail. It had never carried weary travellers to far-off destinations. It's never been anywhere. Just where it was built, right there. Do you ever feel that your life is just pretend to? Remember, we've just asked that. Do you feel you're going nowhere? Well, that's what my two tips are all about today. There's a way to fix that. Guess what it is? So simple. First tip today is start moving. Well, how? Take actions that will make you feel like you're going to want to feel. Don't wait to feel different. 
So here's tip number two. Start doing what you really would like to do because feelings will follow your actions. You'll not have to feel that your life is pretend, that you're not going anywhere, because you'll be moving. So do you want new feelings? Want to feel like your life is on the move again? That you're not at a standstill like the sad old wagon? Then start doing what you want to do, whether you feel like it or not. And positive, happy, successful feelings will follow. So I have two simple tips for today. Start moving and start doing what you really would like to do. You will be surprised what directions your life takes and how far you can go. That's it today from the Two Tip Lady who loves to help make your life more simple. Do this and you'll feel better, guaranteed. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.